Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, cats and dogs, and giraffes everywhere looking for a good chiropractor. It's <laughs> Thursday at 3 o'clock, and you know what that means. Live from the Michigan State University of Campus. Yes, just from the Michigan State University Campus this week. It's Tea with BBP. I'm your host, Bill Van Pat, a.k.a. BBP International Superstar and Diva, Diva of SLA. Walter, why are you spreading your hands out like that? I have no idea what you're talking about, but okay. <laughs> okay, all right. And speaking of chiropractors, here are my two co-hosts, the backbones of this show, mm. Angelica Kramer and Walter Hopkins. Say hi, kids. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. It's great to be with you again today. What I was saying, Walter, was it is live on the MSU campus because I'm not in California right now. I'm actually here yep. in the studio. Yep, and we love seeing you. That was the reference. I was not. Why were you I, saying you didn't understand what that meant? He's just I have generally no idea what you're talking you, you about. You all see what my life is like on a mm, daily basis. Yeah, you see no, what it is, you know. No. Gosh, good thing I'm getting. I didn't new make luggage. any comment on that, so I'm very confused by the. You're asking the question. Well, <laughs> by the way, Walter, have you ever been to a chiropractor? Yes. You have. What yes. for? <laughs> back pain. <laughs> what do you typically go you really to a chiropractor back pain for? for? Did you hurt yourself? I, it was moving. It was in the midst of the moving process. This is like trying. To, this is like trying to interview a 102 student, trying to get them to talk. You know, like he's giving me these one-word answers. Like, so you had a moving process and you hurt yourself, right? Well, I don't know that I hurt myself. I just my back was not happy with me. And, and Angelica, so. have you ever been to a chiropractor? I go once a month. You go once a month, like mm-hmm. whether you need it or not. Yeah, general health. You know, I think oh, just wow. bringing your spine back into alignment. God, I think they, is a they good thing. scare me because that that hurts. They like crack you. Oh, and... but no, no, no. It should never hurt. Oh gosh. When they adjust you, it shouldn't. Just I mean, then you have me. a no, no, no. It's, it's, it's great. Crack I like your it. Spine. Yep. Crack your spine. Yep. Like. I always giggle. Walter <laughs> used to freak out because I used to get acupuncture. Did you know that? I do that once a month too. Oh. I did that once a month, and Walter. I, I, oh, I, I told love Walter. It. I told Walter, come with me. You can see what it's like. He goes, No, I don't no want to see him stick needles. No way, not happening. Why? Oh my god, no, but no. it's so good. Jesus. Yeah, no. Do you have problems getting shots, Walter? Oh yes. Okay. Oh, I give blood, but uh, that's because I want to defeat my fear of needles. Well, but so, also, you, you know. I mean, you're not supposed to feel that either. Well, I mean, unless there are issues. I just have to issues, make sure I'm not then, looking. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. Well, if you're laying on your stomach, you can't see anything yeah. anyway. It's like getting a massage. You're, you're yeah. just, you know, just like little. I have dental anxiety, too. So, you know, we'll mm. just put oh, it all no. out there. Poor Walter. My Poor God, Wally. he's a walking bundle just of nerves. Yeah. Needles. It's just my mm. God, you're a walking bundle of nerves. Hmm. All right, kids out there in the listening audience, uh, although we are live, I mean, I'm here in the studio and we're live and we're here and we're not zombies, we're actually live. Um, technically, this is a pre-recorded show. Now, how is this possible? Well, due to a series of scheduling things this semester, um, uh, a couple of our shows have to be pre-recorded for us to put them up on a Thursday. Um, but we don't just do go in the studio and fake a show and just talk at you for an hour. We actually set something up by which we can actually have a Thursday show that's interactive. So we are delighted today. We are delighted today to have Dustin Crowther's class, one of his classes from Michigan State University, as our listening audience. Um, these are a group of young people who are uh, studying um, language teaching in his course. And so these are pre-service teachers um, who are going to have some very interesting questions for us, I think, from what I gather. Um, so, um, it's live, but it's not live. Does that make sense, Walter? It's live, but it's not live. Right? We're live, but it won't be published live. And the class is live, and they're going to be calling in live in any minute now and tweeting live or mixlerizing live or something. They're going to do something live. We're all live. 
We're all lively. But um, we're alive. Too. We're alive. We're alive. It's alive. Wasn't there a song? <laughs> oh my God, speaking of alive, I just have to say this. I'm just fatutzed. I, I'm I just the only word I can say is I'm fatutzed about Tom Petty. I mean, I'm just, I know some of you out there in the audience, you know, in Dustin's class are too young to know, maybe even know Tom Petty, but God, what a great artist he was, just fatutzed. Anyway, so, okay, um, for those in Dustin's class who are our audience today, remember during the show, there is what is called the SLA challenge question, right? Um, so what I'm going to do in a minute is give a question, and the first person who gets on the phone and calls in with the correct answer wins a prize. Now, everybody cheats, so it's okay, those of you who are first-time listeners in Dustin's class. People Google things. They do stuff you know, to try to get the answer if they don't know it off the top of their heads. And Dustin's there to help you. So whoever calls in with an answer, uh, the first person to call in with the answer gets a prize, uh, if they've got the correct answer. Uh, so keep your cell phones close by and um, be careful running out the door, because I know you have to leave your classroom to go make the phone call. Don't run into anything and hurt yourself on the way. And we also have what's called the Diva Challenge question. So at some point, I'm going to read that question, and you'll have time to pick up your phone, punch in our number, and you tell Dustin, our call handler, that I'm calling with the answer to the Diva question. The number to reach us at is 517-884-4321. Again, that's 517-884-4321. And if we can't say it enough... Walter Angelica, what's the phone number? 517-884-4321. That's Yay. right. And again, Dustin DeFelice is on the phone lines waiting for you to call in. Angelica's looking at Mixler, so if Dustin in your class, you and your class want to send us something over Mixler, we can see that. Um, but remember, we're a call-in talk show. We like the interaction. We're all language teachers. We want to talk to each other. We're about communication. So call in, call, call in, in, call, call in, in, call in. in. All right. And don't forget that if you call in, what else happens, Walter? Oh, it's so exciting. I just can't. Oh, wait. You know, they're going to give away a book to yeah. one caller today. So whether you call for the Diva Challenge or the SLA Challenge question or just call to ask a question, you will be put into a drawing to win. While we're on the topic, BVP on language acquisition and classroom practice. You have such it's, a good radio voice, it's not even funny. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So call in, call in, call right? in. Okay. He was born for this. Mm, I agree. He was born, born. Okay. I sound, I listen to myself and I sound like a chipmunk on the radio, but no. that's okay. Alvin! <laughs> you know what my favorite recording was growing up as a kid? The what? Chipmunks Christmas album. Oh, God. Christmas, Christmas time is near. Time for toys and time for a chair. Anyway, so. Okay, so <laughs> let me uh, get right to our topic for today because we don't really have a topic. We Again, as I said earlier, we we're pleased to be taking questions from a very eager group of instructors in training. Uh, they're currently taking a course on language teaching as part of their undergraduate curriculum, and they have lots and lots of questions about language acquisition, language teaching, education, and so on. So we're not imposing any topic because it's suggesting any topic. We want to hear what these educators in training want to ask about. So sit back, and those of you who will be listening to this as a podcast instead of live, um, take in their questions or their asks. We were all, all of us, right? We're educators in training at some point, so I'm glad we're here to take their questions today. Um, and while they're getting ready to call in or send us their questions, I'm going to go ahead and give the SLA challenge question now. Can I do that, Luca? It's not on my, it's not on my Tila thing. I'll do that, and then we'll take a call. So I always like to put the SLA challenge question out because it takes people time to figure out the answer if they don't know it. Okay, there is such a thing called the no interface position 
which holds that explicit knowledge, right, knowledge about language you get explicitly, is separate from and does not feed into the implicit knowledge you have of language, or what I call representation, right? Aside from yours truly, the divine diva of SLA, name another scholar who has held this position. And there are multiple scholars, not just one. So um, you can find one. So the no interface position holds that explicit knowledge system is separate from and does not feed into the implicit representation of language in any way. So aside from yours truly, BVP, name another scholar who has held or holds this position. All right. So there we go. Interface. That's always a good one. Okay, we have our first caller on the line. Oh my God, it looks like maybe the teacher's calling in. Should I take this call? Yes, absolutely. Dustin Felice, this is not you, Dustin Felice, calling in, is it? No, I want to make sure we have so many Dustins <laughs> running around. All right, Dustin, are you on the line? I'm on the line. Can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you Hi, loud Dustin. and clear, Dustin. How's it going? It's going good. It's going good, Bill. Thank you for asking. How's your class today? I think we're doing wonderful. Are they smiling? Are they, ex- to your every word. are they excited about being there listening to the show live? Absolutely. 100%. Oh, good. Good. So what yeah, are you calling about? We've been Dust- prepping for weeks. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I like that. They've been prepping for weeks. That we expect a lot of good questions in. Um, yeah. so, so what's on your mind, Dustin? What are you calling about? So as we were listening to some of the previous podcasts, we treated it as part of an extra credit assignment for the class. Uh, some of the students were listening to uh, your podcast from a few weeks ago where you indicated that there were limita- limitations of teacher training in regards to language teaching preparation programs. So as their instructor, and considering that even for our course, we only have about 15 weeks, what would be three key foci you would recommend that I emphasize or that I focus on in the classroom? Well... Okay, that's hard for me to say because you're already in your class and I'm not going to try to undermine anything you're doing. So let me clarify a couple of things. Um, I have said repeatedly that um, in teacher education programs, at least with language, that I do not believe that teachers get enough background in the nature of language, the nature of communication, and the nature of acquisition. So let me just real quickly go on those three things. So the thing about the nature of language is that a lot of teachers believe that what's in textbooks is what winds up in your head. So my classic line is page 32 of the textbook, right? It might have a rule in it or a paradigm or something about language. And teachers actually think that 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 thing on that page is what winds up in your head. And the point is that it doesn't because language does not work the way it's presented in textbooks. It can't. And so there's no relationship between textbook rules, for example, and textbook language and our underlying representation. And there's no mechanism that converts that, uh, which is part of the acquisition issue. So I like teachers to have some broad, basic knowledge of how abstract and complex language is so they can understand why that textbook rule, what they're teaching in textbooks, is not really psychologically real. Let's put it that way. Um, The second thing is about communication. We've been doing communicative language teaching, or been trying to, since the mid-70s. And it's totally misunderstood. And the reason is, is because textbooks do a lot of the the training on teachers of what communicative language teaching is. So Walter will write a book, and he'll call it uh, the fancy-schmancy way to teach Spanish. And Angelica will write a book, and she calls it the fancy-schmancy way to teach German. And both of them in their subtitles put a communicative approach. And because it says a communicative approach at the bottom, teachers look at this, and they go, oh, 
publishers are doing this, so it must be a communicative book. And that, and so people get a warped sense of what communicative language teaching is. And one of the reasons they have that is because they don't have a working definition of communication, how communication happens in real life, how it can happen in classrooms and not happen in classrooms, the whole gamut of things. And so to understand um, communicative language teaching, you have to have a solid foundation in some working construct of what communication is, because that helps you evaluate whether those textbooks are communicative or not, or whether something you're asked to do is communicative or not. And then the third area is acquisition, which of course is, what are the constraints, and we know there are many, what are the constraints on acquiring a language? So learners bring to the task a whole host of things that constrain everything about how language develops over time. And those constraints um, cannot be overridden by teaching, they can't be overridden by textbooks, they can't be overridden by testing. Um, because the mind is in charge of the creation of language. And we need to understand how that happens. Teachers need to understand that so they can understand the constraints on their own efforts. So those are the three areas I always talk about. How you fit those into a 15-week course, Dustin, I don't know. My preference is that you actually, we need to expand teacher education and think about a little bit of profundity in each of those areas. How's that sound? That That sounds nice. Ideal. Yeah, it is ideal. Yeah. So, so and like in my book, for example, only has six chapters in it, six principles. The first three are about language, communication, and acquisition. Um, and then the next three are about input, um, tasks, and um, focus on form. So, right. so sometimes I think there's too much in courses. Sometimes less is more. All right. So as a, I guess, a bit of a follow-up. So for a lot of the students in our class, we're going to be working in a context in which, they're, in which they're not specifically teaching language, but they'll be working with language learners uh, within a more content-based class, uh, probably in a K-12 system. Would you offer any specific advice for that context? No specific advice? And so what kind of advice? About preparation uh, or teaching? Preparation, uh, balancing. So how do we... If you have an English language learner within a classroom where there might be some native speakers and you're trying to focus on, say, math or history or literature or something like that, any thoughts on how they might go about approaching planning a class for when you have some English language learners within a content course? Okay, so two things. Let me just back up and say that in terms of preparing for teaching in an ELL-type context, the idea is the same. You still need the same background, whether you're teaching ELL students, ESL students, EFL students, students of German as a second language, Spanish. The basic principles are always the same, and that's what's missing now. I think people are getting out of, te- out of teacher education without principles that guide what they do. Okay, so that's one thing. In terms of with that particular context you just said about an ELL context where you might have English language learner or learners mixed in with native speakers and so on, teachers have to teach to some middle ground, right? They always do in the sense of how they structure class and so on. Um, And so one thing that can happen in those kinds of classes that will help those limited speakers of English or maybe people who need a little more help is to devise tasks in class in which um, students interacting with each other because you'd be surprised about how much learning happens in tasks. Not just language learning, but content learning happens in tasks. Um, Jim Lee did a study one time about tasks in the classroom. And this was a Spanish, these were Spanish classes, by the way. And he did a teacher-funded class, and then he did a class where students were, um, had tasks. The topic was the same, 
Um, and the teacher was the same. So he controlled for teacher, but um, and Jim observed both classes to make sure what was going on. But one class was completely teacher-led, and the other, ta- the other class was task-driven. And what he found was that at the at the end of the treatment period, or the end of the period he observed, that um, of course in the teacher-led class, two students were talking less. In the task-based class, they were talking more. But here's the rub. This was a Spanish L2 class, so these were limited speakers of Spanish. The people in the task-based class learned more information about the topic, significantly more, like twice as much information, because they interact with each other and explain things to each other and breaking it down to their own level. And so teachers need to be aware that they don't always have to teach at students. They can provide the mechanism by which students can interact with each other, and out of that, some learning happens, particularly with content. So that's one thing that teachers can explore in those kind of situations, I think. Um, that can be true of ELL. It can be true of a Spanish or a German class. So, um, uh, it, it, But, again, those have to be structured and tasks have to be structured in particular ways for that to happen. But, um, but there's some evidence out there that suggests that tasks are a good way for teachers to turn the learning over to students um, so that um, individual needs can be met at a, at a, at a micro level. And then the teacher can right. bring back and find out what happens. So that's one suggestion. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, thank you. That's a good question. Yeah. All, all right. Let's see. Uh, well, thank you, Dustin. We'll chat with you later. So we're going to hang up now and see who else is going to call in. Do we have any all right. questions coming in yet? Uh, no, not yet. I all think. Right. I think. Okay. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks for Dustin. calling, Dustin. Bye-bye. Um, I think what's happening is Dustin is is handing a lot. Of, I think he's actually handing Mixler for his class. So they're going to shout out questions. Mm-hmm. He'll Mixlerize mm-hmm. them as they come in. But um, so while we're waiting, do we have any leftover email questions from last week, Walter, that we want to deal with while we wait for somebody to call in with their questions from Dustin's class? Well, let's take a look here. I think um, we had one or two from last week that we just couldn't get to. Um, that we I always like to get to our email questions if we can. By the way, those of you who email questions in just as a little word of advice. Kind of keep them simple. Sometimes we get questions that take an <laughs> hour to answer, and we're only an hour show. So it's not that we, we don't want to answer your question, but sometimes it's hard to answer your question in the time frame we have. So, Well, I have a, an interesting question. Okay, that, go ahead. Um, might take a while or might not be answerable, but we'll see how it goes. How's that? This is a question from Mary, and she says, when we are not in the classroom, how can language students help Native speakers remember to use comprehensible input when communicating with them. Do any strategies exist? I found that native native speakers, non-teachers, tend to overestimate the comprehension of students. In order to, order to have meaningful interactions with native speakers of the L2, do students need a certain level of proficiency? Um, in order to interact with native speakers, right? Actually, they do. They, they in order to interact fully in the sense of to, to 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 negotiate the input, they need to be at least intermediate mid, intermediate highs, but intermediate mid is decent for going into an environment and then pushing your language skills after that. Um, and I remember way back in the late seventies, early eighties, Steve Krashen, of course, it's always he comes back to Steve, came up with this idea. He called them language buttons where you would wear a button that said, I'm an intermediate speaker, I'm a, I'm a novice speaker, or, and it would, it would give you a little thing. And, and so not that people would know what these meant, but this idea was to somehow give learners something they could wear that identified them so that native speakers would look at them and go, okay, I need to know how to, I need to speak slower or whatever. Um, 
one of the strategies you can have is before you start interacting with native speakers is develop a few um, sentences or write it out or however it works so that you can tell that native speaker, I am just beginning or I am a level. You're going to have to speak slow to me or you might have to repeat a lot. Just you have to be able to tell that person right up front. So you, if you don't have the ability to do that, you've got to get that. You've got to sort of just memorize how to do that so you can spit it out, quote unquote, to that person. Um, or I remember one time when I was working in uh, Macy's. I used to be a manager at Macy's when I was in college. And somebody came up to me. She was signing me, and I don't know ASL. So she started writing notes to me. And so she was using a different means to communicate with me because I couldn't speak to her in her language, and she couldn't speak to me in mine. And so, um, so writing something out and have it ready to go and just showing it to someone saying, I can speak a little bit of German, but you might have to speak slow and repeat a lot for me. Um, and then that will, I think that gives people information right up front. Mm-hmm. So just having those strategies of letting somebody know right, just taking control of the situation right away. Because if you go, I did this happen to me, this happened to me, here's an anecdote, I can understand what the person's asking. One of the first time I went to Paris, I had like, I think two years of French or something in college. And I went to Paris. And my, you know, I could spit out a few things. And so I walked up with this policeman and I said, I'd like to know where blah, blah, blah is. He spoke so <laughs> fast to me because I, I, I did my thing yeah, so well. yeah, yeah. yeah. That he thought I could speak French. And I had to slow him down and say, excuse me, could you say that again, please? And he did the same thing I said. And, and finally <laughs> I said, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't understand. And so then he started slow. So then we negotiated quite a bit. But the problem was I gave him the wrong signals and non-native mm-hmm. speaker because I tried to speak my best French possible when I should have spoken the worst French possible <laughs> <laughs> to let him know that I couldn't speak You were just so French. impressive. <laughs> I don't know about that. But. <laughs> okay, we got another call on the line. We've got Natalie on the line. Natalie, you're there. Yep, I'm here. Hey, Natalie, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm good. Are you enjoying that great fall weather here in uh, East Central Michigan? Uh, whatever, not East Central. Where was Central? Wow, we're South Central, Central Michigan. Wow. South Central Michigan. <laughs> I don't know where we are. I don't <laughs> yeah, know what state awesome. I'm in. Yeah, it's good weather, right? Mm-hmm. So what are you calling about, Natalie? What's up? So I have a question, kind of one that we came up with as a class. Um, but depending on a learner's L1 or culture, might it be necessary to alter your teaching approach or method? So depending on the L1 or the culture, should might it be appropriate to alter your method or approach? Yeah. Um, that's a good question, and I could see arguments on both sides. In terms of how language acquisition happens, the answer is no. It doesn't make a difference what your first language is. It make a difference. Those kinds of things in the big picture sort themselves out. I know a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, if you're a speaker of Japanese, it's going to be hard for you to learn French. And, uh, but if you're a speaker of Spanish, it'll be easier for you to learn French. That's actually not true um, from the research. And so, so the language, the L1 has an impact. We're not quite sure what it is. It has an impact on language acquisition. Um, but it's not, it's not of concern that we need to alter what we do in the classroom as language teachers in the sense of a communicative, supportive, input-rich environment for language learners, right? Um, but culture can make a difference, not in, again, your overall method of approach, but the delivery of that. Um, and so, um, for example, I remember the first time I taught an ESL class, I had half Japanese speakers and half Arabic speakers. And those two cultures were completely different. And the Japanese 
speakers expected one thing and Arabic speakers expected another. And so I had to not adjust the fact that we were communicative and input rich and all that kind of stuff in the class I was teaching, but I had to be prepared to engage the Japanese speakers one way and the Arabic speakers another. And so, and that's just cultural differences. Like the Japanese speakers might want to stand up and go hi and then give an answer about, you know, so there's, there, there, and, and the Arabic speakers were more in, in the sense of anything goes and behind the teacher's back, anything goes. And so you had to deal with those kinds of things. So those aren't really about your approach, but they're about how you handle the people. And so, um, so there's, there's, it's not that your approach or method changes. It's just that you adjust the way you treat the people in the classroom and you manage manage people in the classroom, if that makes sense. Does that make sense to say, talk about managing people? Yeah, no, that makes absolute sense. Yeah, but the L1 itself it shouldn't be the problem. Um, but, but the cultural things could be, because it is different to teach. Like, and even sometimes you watch Japanese. I went to this great um, high school class one time in outside of Seattle and watched this Japanese teacher teaching Japanese to English-speaking students, and she made them behave in her class like Japanese students in Japanese culture. They had to stand up and go, hi, say the answer, and then bow again and then sit back down. And she did that, and and this class was interactive, and then she had group work where they did things. It was a very good class, but it looked like a Japanese class from Japan. So um, I thought that was very interesting that she imported the Japanese culture and demanded that of the English, rather than adapting, managing the English speakers. So there are different ways to approach that issue. It just depends on the context you're in. So, Any other questions from you, Natalie? You got anything else on your mind? Uh, nope, not at the moment. That, uh, that answers everything. Well, Thank great. You. Thanks for calling in. Your name's going in the hat. There you go. Thanks yeah. for calling, okay. Natalie. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Bye. Natalie. Bye-bye. Bye. I have a Mixler question, though. How about a Mixler question? Okay, so this is also a class question from um, Dustin's class, and the question is as follows. We have only discussed age briefly, but we are curious on your thoughts on the existence of a critical period and how it might affect work with K-7 through English language learners. Critical period. That's a highly debatable topic, critical period, (laughs) whether there is one or not. Um, so that you know, I fall on the side that there is not a critical period. Um, it, it, it's um, then there are people who believe that there are critical periods for different things. Uh, so some part of language might have a critical period, but another part of language might not. Um, and so, and then there are people, of course, who believe in a massive critical period where somehow magically at this certain age, just language learning cuts off, and you've got you can't learn language um, in any way other than through study and practice. <clears throat> I, I think that that latter claim, the, the harsh claim of that critical period, there's a cutoff point, is largely fading from, from favor. I think most people believe that language learning can get more difficult as you get older, but not necessarily because there's a critical period, but because you have less time on task, <clears throat> because you have other things to do with your life. Um, because who, who knows, motivation, all kinds of things happen that, that affect language learning, that don't affect first language learning or learning in an early age. And so I don't think, I would not change any methods or approaches um, on K through, and put a number in the end, 85. Um, so whether you're teaching kindergarten or you're teaching seventh grade, you're teaching 12th grade, or you're teaching university, you're teaching adult education, um, the basic principles are the same. Again, 
context, the setting of participants dictates how those things play out in class. So like with adult learners in, in an adult education class, you're not going to do a story with them quite the same way you might do it with um, six or seven-year-olds, right? So you might still do the same activity type in class, but the way it happens in class can be slightly different because those kids are going to shout and scream and clap and applaud and you want to engage them in a certain way. It's like a play. It's playing for Where the adults, it's more, it's a little bit different, but you're still basically doing the same activity. Um, so it, again, uh, you got to let the context and the people, um, that whole idea of managing people as part of the interaction is, is what you want to get into and not changing your method or your approach. So thank you for that question. That was a good question. Whoever asked that. that was well, very good. thank you for the answer. There we go. Uh, we need to get a challenge. We need, I'm going to repeat the SLA challenge oh, question yeah, just real do. quick because I think people need to call in. This is really easy. All you got to do is Google no interface and see what happens. Okay. The no interface position holds that the explicit knowledge system is separate from and does not feed into the implicit mental representation of language in any way. Aside from yours, truly, BBP, name another scholar or researcher who has held the same position that there is no interface between explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge. And you don't go to psychologists, go to L2 people. Because I can tell you right now, most psychologists hold that there's no <laughs> interface between explicit and implicit knowledge. In fact, you know what's happening now in psychology, Angelica, did you know this? What's that? They're coming down hard on the implicit side in psychology. Almost everything we do huh. in life is learned implicitly in psychology now, more and more. Huh. Yep. Interesting. So, yeah, so anyway. Even like facial recognition and things like that and, and huh. learning how to drive and stuff is all less less explicit than people thought it was. So, all right. I think there's some calls coming in. I see Dustin Man and phones. But can we, do we have another question online or something while we're waiting for that call to come in? Walter? Well, I'm going through the emails and finding some some interesting old conversations that have been sitting here for a while. All right. Um, and... Uh, trying to find some that would be easy to ask. So here's one. What? Are you ready? Ask me an easy one, Walter. Ask you an easy one. <laughs> what sort of CI-based assessments can you give first-year students in the first couple of months of instruction? The administration wants summatives every other week. So this is from Kristen. She asked this question. So she's looking, what kind of assessments can you give in the first couple months of instruction if you're doing it in a CI-based classroom, comprehensible in input-based classroom. There you have it. There you go. It, 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 and it, it depends on what is being asked of you in terms of an assessment. So, um, you know, a standard thing that like a lot of TPRS people use is, you know, the free writing or the timed writing at the end of a class or the end of a week to see what students can put back on paper based on all their interactions during class. And a lot of teachers post those online, by the way. I just saw one recently from Chris Stoltz's class. And those can be used as summative things, and you just look at them. You look at number of words used. You look at the um, length of sentences. You look at how much they're writing. You just There's a variety of metrics you can use when you do that. Um, and uh, then I also argue for – I was talking to Reed about this. Remember our, our Reed from Hawaii? That um, we need to include comprehension-based things. So what can they comprehend now? So if you give them, let's say you've been working with something for a while, for a week in class, and in the week you give them a comprehension test. So you give them a, you, something they listen to, um, and then they've got to do something with that to indicate their comprehension. That's an assessment. I think, I think the problem with assessment is too many people are focused on a test 
um, give me points and fill in the blank or, uh, you know, this has all to do with that idea of um, language as subject matter, which we've argued against in this program and I argued against my book. Um, so I think uh, the timed writing things are good. I think the free writing things are good. You can give reading comprehension tests. You can give listening comprehension tests. Those are all appropriate for beginning stage CI stuff. And I would go for the comprehension stuff. Show how much they can comprehend. Because you're the ones that have to make the argument that comprehension is leading production. So they have to start comprehending before they can produce. So if you can show really good comprehension of stuff early on, that's your, your say, see, my next step down the road, we're going to be, they'll be producing more, don't worry. Um, and then, so that's the metric I would use, some kind of comprehension. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. The comprehension is important, and I think sometimes people forget about that. Well, as we said, you know, communication is an expression, interpretation, and negotiation of meaning in a given context. And so at the beginning stages, learners are largely interpreters of meaning. So let them show how they can interpret meaning. Okay, we got another call on the line. We got Liz on the line. Liz, are you there? I am. Hello. Hey, Liz. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. A little bit of a sinus headache today and a few other little irks and quirks in my body. But, hey, what can I say? You know, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I would like to start off really quick and just say hello to Angelica because I took your fairy tales class this summer. Oh, so fantastic. Again. Good deal. How'd you do in her class? What grade you got? Just kidding. <laughs> Four point. Just kidding. Four point. It was awesome. I loved it. That's great to hear. Um, okay, so I have a question. Um, we talked a little bit about the task-based approach, but just to expand on that, um, how effective would a task-based approach be for beginning learner learners with limited grammatical knowledge, and what are the potential long-term effects? Um, in my book, I talk about tasks. A lot of people think that tasks, uh, and of course Liz is asking one of the most important questions that are related to tasks. So Liz, thank you for asking this question. Um, but People think that task is always about getting the students to talk, but no, you can have an input-based task where learners are um, engaged in interpreting language as part of tasks. Um, so, for example, and what that means, here's an example. In step one, in my kind of task, there are different kinds of tasks, but in, in, my, in the kind of task I use in my task-driven approach is learners, step one might be they got a series of statements about themselves. So it says, I get up at 6 a.m., or whatever. Or I get up with a, you know, with a blank, so I have to put a time in. Um, and so the, the step doesn't really involve any production. They have to read statements, and the teacher goes over the statements with them so they can hear them as well. Um, and so the students might check off which ones apply to them. They might fill in a, little, a word uh, that completes the sentence based on their reality and so on. And then what happens in step two is like, so I'll have to interview Walter. And then Walter has an interview on Gallica. So in the next step, I have written out the questions based on step one to ask Walter. So I ask Walter, what time do you get up? And then that question will be there. The task is, just so you know, the task is about building class profiles in terms of daily schedules. What's a typical student daily schedule? That's where we're headed, right? So, so Walter, so I ask Walter a series of questions, but they're all written out for me. I don't have to create with language. So I have on the paper in front of me, what time do you get up? Um, when's your first class? I have all these questions. I just ask them a Walter, and then I jot down 
a one-word or two-word response that he gives me. And then Walter does the same thing with Miguel and so on and so. And then the teacher pulls it all back and starts assembling the information on the board so we can start to build a class profile. That's a task. But notice how the student is not put in the position of having to create language without the ability to create language. But the student is actually involved in getting information and performing a task. It's input-based because step one is I'm just checking off things or putting a word in. Um, and step two is I don't need to create a language. All the questions I need are on the page, and those questions are input to me, so I learn how to ask questions. And then the teacher in step three and step four engages the class and is input driving that task at that point by engaging the learners and giving one-word answers or short things that that teacher knows the students can do. Um, and so you can have tasks early on um, that are input-based. And then you can gradually move students to more output-based tasks as, as the need arises. Um, you can do it lots. Of, what happens is I've discovered in my teaching over the years that in the early, I could take that input, the one I just told you, that input-based class, take it to my third-year conversation class as is, and they start doing more output interaction with it because they have the skills. So they take control of that cast and do things to it that I don't have built into it, whereas the beginning students stick more to the, what's on the page. So even an input-based task can be used at multiple levels, and the more advanced learners can play with it a little more because they have more language to play with. So, so input-based tasks exist, and it's just a matter of getting those out there, letting people know that tasks aren't always about just creating language and talking. That makes sense, Liz? Definitely. Thank you. There you go. All right. Um, thanks for calling in, Liz, and we're going to wait for one of your other classmates to call in soon. And I have a question for Angelica. That's fantastic. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye, Liz. Thanks for calling, Bye, Liz. Liz. And Liz, you might... You might win this book that he was just talking yeah. about. So right. your name is now in the hat. Right. So far, only two people. So, Did you just say you have a question for me? I do, because you teach that course on fairy tales. Yeah. Did you ever used to watch Bullwinkle and mm. Rocky? No. Cartoon show. It was a black and white cartoon show from the is. 60s. And they had this segment called Fractured Fairy Tales. Huh. And they would take fairy tales and turn mm -hmm. them into a funny story, which completely is, oh, you have to Google or do yeah. YouTube fractured yeah. fairy tales. Okay. Oh, you'll just die. They're hysterical. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. Anyway, we got a call in the line. We got Mary. Hey, Mary, you on the phone? I am. Hey, Mary, how's it going? Good. How are you? Oh, we're, we're pretty good here. We're like Walter just trying to stop full yawn, I can tell. And <laughs> Poor Walter. He makes things up about me all no, the time. Didn't he look like he was about to yawn, Angelica? You're giving, Mary a fear, you're giving poor Mary an inferiority complex. Here she's calling in. You're already yawning in her face, Walter. Right, How rude. Right. How rude. <laughs> Mary, <laughs> what are you calling about, Mary? Yeah, Mary, what are you calling about? Um, to answer the question? Oh, the SLA challenge question. Great. Uh, here's what we do is I'm going to read it again real quick, and then you can give the answer. Are you ready? Here's the question okay. again. The no interface position holds that explicit knowledge is separate from and does not feed into the implicit system, or mental representation of language in any real way. Aside from BVP, yours truly, name another scholar who has held this position. Mm -hmm. Mary, your answer is? Is it Krashen? Yay! Yay! Ding, 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 ding. Krashen is one, yes. And then there are some <laughs> others. There are uh, um, John Truscott, I believe, is another person who is fairly strong. He might have a little wiggle room, but he's pretty much no interface. Michael Shard Smith's another, and there's, there's some others. But Steve Krashen was actually one of the first people to talk about this um, back in the late 70s. So good for you, Mary. Um, you win a prize. Um, Yay, Mary. Dustin will get that prize to you uh, this week. And then your name goes into the hat today for a drawing for my book. Are you excited? 
Yeah. There we go. <laughs> well, thank you, Mary. And uh, I'm going to hang up on you now because I'm going to give the Diva Challenge question now for the next caller. Great idea. Thanks for calling, Mary. Thanks, Thanks Mary. Mary. Thank you. Have a great Bye-bye. afternoon. Okay, real quick. This is an easy one. Oh, you I better get. That. I better get like 10 phone calls to vying to win this prize. This is a one, one simple question, Diva Challenge question. What pop diva said that you could share her umbrella? <laughs> so easy. I I'll repeat. <laughs> these, these, for these, these kids will know. Yeah, you they don't. probably will. You're exactly right. So I'll right. repeat. I'll repeat again. What pop diva said you could share her umbrella? So call in with that answer, and Dustin's waiting for you to call in, and you can win a prize and also get your name in the hat for my book. I so, have a question for you. Good. Carol is asking. Hey, Carol. Would you bother assessing presentational and or productive skills in level one? No. Okay. Awesome. Why not? Because they don't have anything really to produce within level one. Mm. They really don't. I mean, you shouldn't do that in level one because presentation means, I mean, unless you're going to have them stand up and say one sentence, right? I mean, so Walter's in my level one class and he at that point might be able to say, Angelica drinks tea. A lot. <laughs> because, you know, and, and or, that might be true. Or I might be able to say, Angelica drink tea. A lot. Right. <laughs> Whatever. And so, because um, so, I understand presentational to mean that it's, it's presentational purpose in the sense you're giving a presentation. You have to be able to say more than one sentence. And beginning learners just, it's hard for them. That's why they're called novices. It's hard for them to say more than one. It's hard for them to get a sentence out. So we got to let that system build up in their head so that they can tap it. To, well, yeah. Uh, remember, the novice learners can speak in lists, basically, or in short sentence fragments. It's not, yeah. or they're or not able to produce. Memorized, memorized chunks or right. something. Yeah. So, um, Anyway, so, yeah, so novice people, I would never, and like, for example, in our level one in Spanish and in French, we don't do that. We don't have presentational modes. We do have that in 202, the fourth semester, but that's rehearsed. They practice it. They work in groups. They do uh, PowerPoint presentations on their interactions with native speakers from talk abroad. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they actually work in groups of two or three to put it together as a group, and they each, you know, so, and it's, so it's it's a planned discourse, not a spontaneous discourse, so... All right, we got another call on the line. We got Luis calling. Luis, are you there? Yes, I'm here, BBP. Hey, Luis, uh, what's up? What are you calling about? So, I would like to answer the diva question, okay? All right, well, let me repeat the diva question for everybody and then you can answer it. Here we go. Ready? All right. What pop diva said that you could share her umbrella? The answer is, Luis? Rihanna? Rihanna! Ella, Ella, Ella. I knew that, that, actually. Of course you did. I'm very proud of You did know that? I did know that, yes. I'm impressed. Luis wins a a prize, and his name goes in the hat for drawing for the book in a little while. So good for you, Luis. Great. Thank you very much. Do you have any other questions or comments before we hang up? Yes, I do. I would like to ask you, what do you think about language learning softwares? Ooh, that's Ooh. that's a big question. That that <laughs> yeah. question is so broad because there's so many different kinds of software, so many different kinds of programs out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say the following: okay. If the software can help us uh, under uh, what do you call it fits in with the principles by which we want to teach, then I'll look at it. 
If it doesn't, I don't want to look at it. How's that? So, for example, in my, in my book, I outline six principles. And these are the most basic ones because we need, we need something simple to, to think about as teachers. And we need a basic handful of principles, you know, kind of like the Ten Commandments of language teaching. We don't need a big, lofty set of things. We just need a handful of things that help us constantly evaluate what people are asking us to do, right? So just like if I get standards from the government or if I get Common Core from Walter, if I get assessment from Angelica and somebody else tells me to do this, I go back to my principle. I go, how do these things work with my principles? How do they, how do they, they don't. Well, then I've got to adjust, not the principle, I have to adjust the assessment or, or I have to explain to them why I can't do that. Because you have to go back to the principles. So the same thing is with software and any technology people want. If it helps me uh, and fits within the principles of how I develop my course, then fine, I'll look at it. If it doesn't, I'm not going to look at it. How's that? Sounds great. All right. Thank you very much for your okay. answer. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot, Luis. Have a great day. Thanks, Luis. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. 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 All right. Bye-bye. I'm getting dry mouth. Am I? Because can you guys look? Do I have like a white tongue? Yeah, you do, actually. Do I really? Yeah. yeah. God, I think I, those, those med- that medication. staying far away. That medication I was taking, I'm telling you, did me in. As long as you're not getting sick, Mm-mm. that's. It's this, this, this is what, oh, because I, I left California and flew here sick, mm-hmm. but not sick, sick. Mm-hmm. It was it medication that was yeah. making me sick? So it's not good. Anyway, so anything else on uh, Mixler or something else before we take the next call? Because we got a call coming in right now. I think I think you should be taking the next call. All right, I'm gonna take the next call. Uh, we have Michelle. Michelle, are you on the line? Yeah. Hey, Michelle, how you doing? Good. How are you? I'm pretty good, except for my white tongue. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> these guys look at my tongue now. They make me feel self conscious. Like I want a mirror. I want to see my tongue. Okay, Michelle. You stuck it out at I'll us. I'll look at my tongue you... later, Michelle. Don't worry about it. So, <laughs> what are you calling about, Michelle? What's up? Um, so we're curious about learners with special needs. So we were wondering, are you familiar with any literature and what literature might say on language education for learners with special needs? Um, and from like a theoretical and pedagogical perspective, what might be some important consideration? That's that's those are real. That's a really good question. And to be honest with Michelle, I don't know of any literature or research on that. I okay. don't think there really is that much. Angelica, do you remember? Maybe Walt, you know this. Is there a SIG, a special interest group? With ACTFL, they handle special needs? I don't think so. I don't think so Not to my knowledge. I don't think so. This question comes up now and then, and there's just not much done on that. I know that. Mm -hmm. And and there's different kinds of special needs. It depends on what you mean by special needs. Do you have, Michelle, do you have a a particular set of special needs you're thinking about or just special needs in Um, general? um, I've always been curious, like, children with, like, visual impairment, Mm -hmm. how, I guess this could be, like, just, first language acquisition too, like children with visual impairment, how is their um, language acquisition, how does that vary from children who don't have visual impairments? Uh, yeah, you know, and I'm sure there's literature on that, and that is literature I'm unfamiliar with, but I'm almost positive there's literature on that. In first language okay. acquisition, there's literature on just about everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure it's affected somehow, but in the long run, it's not. I mean, okay. it's like it's like anything that's a little bit different from the monolingual, not the monolingual, well, the monolingual, the monolingual only child being raised by two parents, for example, uh-huh. in, in a, you know, um, is the norm, you know, if you quote unquote the norm. Mm-hmm. And so anything, so like twins have 
language acquisition that's slightly different from that model. Um, And so, um, and bilingual children have development that's slightly different from that model. Usually it's onset. It's, it's, It's slightly delayed stuff. But usually by the age of like five, everybody's at the same place. So all okay. the stuff, all the effects of those kinds of stuff on language tends to happen early on. Okay. So by the age of three or four, those things get ironed out. Um, but at least from what I know about twins and bilinguals, I can't, again, speak to like visually impaired or hearing, well, hearing impaired to be using ASL anyway. But, um, but other kinds of things like autism or the kinds of special needs, um, I just don't think there's any literature out there on that that I know oh, of. Wow. And for L2 learners, I just cannot tell you about anything. So Okay. Well, I guess we'll have to look into that more. Yeah, we will. That's something that, that we might suggest American Council Teach of Foreign Languages. That might be a special interest group that needs mm-hmm. to be formed or something. So. Mm-hmm. All right. That was a great question, it though, was. Michelle. It was. Yeah, these people are thinking today, I tell you. Thanks, Michelle. <laughs> we'll see you. Yep. Okay, Bye. your name Bye, goes Michelle. in the hat. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye. That, was a, that was a good question. That that's tough. That's mm. tough. We have, uh, we have a student... Visually impaired this semester in one of our TAs classes, and there's, but you know we have a whole apparatus here at the university to help people with disabilities and special needs, whatever you want to call that, and so that student's getting a lot of support from that office um, for this class and all of his classes, or is it his or her? Her. Her classes. So, um, but that's different from uh, a public school system. I don't, I don't know if they, they don't have offices like that the way we have. I mean, we have a whole office with a huge staff that does this kind of stuff. So. All right. What else we got coming in? Any more Mixler? Any more email questions coming in? Nothing on Mixler right now. Oh, come on, kids. I know you're sitting there. Dustin, send us a question, Dustin. I know your kids want to have more questions. Well, I've got, um, you may recall, we had an article sent in back in September, and the, the article was about the bilingual brain and arithmetic. And I think we forwarded that along to you. Did you have a chance to read that article? I, yeah, I looked at it. So And so the the... The person who sent in the question, Lacey, she just wants to know, what did you think about that article? Um, I think it was spot on. I think that that it sort of addresses things a lot of us were guessing at already um, based on experience, which is not the best way to think about things, as we know. Um, but arithmetic and languages, because I'm, I'm trying, it's been so long since I read that article now um, or looked at it, but my recollection is that there was different processing and delayed processing of arithmetic in a second language or a less dominant language than there was in the first language. Am I correct? I don't, yeah. I, I, it's, the, the title is The Bilingual Brain Calculates Arithmetic Differently Depending on the Language. So so that's, uh, that's I guess, the, the title and the, the thesis statement. I would okay, imagine. yeah. So. Because, because we know that, that those kinds of... Most people in their second language or the less dominant language have a harder time. Like, for example, I was raised with two languages, but I did all my schooling and all my learning in English. And so I can do basic math fairly quickly in Spanish, just like English. Um, but ask me to solve an equation, and I can hear my brain clicking, all, clicking along in English. It mm-hmm. just switches over. to. I could be speaking to Angelica in Spanish. I could be speaking to Walter in Spanish. And you put an equation in front of me, and I'll, my brain will click over mm-hmm. to English as it tries to solve that equation, because it's much more complex than you know mm-hmm. two and two is four. Which again, I can we a lot of us learn those things as kids mm. in both languages. So um, anyway, I have a quick question. Yes, this is from Dustin's class. 
We have discussed several theories and approaches of SLA. Two that have proven difficult to differentiate between are the interaction approach and sociocultural theory, as both seem to be based on interaction. Could you help clarify the difference? Yes. Sociocultural theory is an educational theory. Um, it's, about, it's about education more generally in the development of explicit knowledge. So whether it's social science or math or language. Um, and um, so it's not a theory about language acquisition. Interaction is a hypothesis. It's a framework. It's not really a theory. The interaction hypothesis and interaction framework is about language, and it doesn't make reference to explicit learning or implicit learning um, depending on who you look at and who you're reading. Um, so those are the main differences. So one is clearly about explicit knowledge. The other one's not. One is about educational contexts, and one is not, um, at least the way they're applied to language stuff. Great. Like sociocultural people, as far as I can tell, I've only been looking at classrooms. I've never read a sociocultural, and I could be wrong. Someone's going to call and someone's going to tweet or someone's going to say something, but I've, I've not seen anything about sociocultural theory applied to naturalistic learning, learning outside the classroom. So, um, and in our last edition of our 2015 book on theories, um, the revised chapter on sociocultural theory, they actually talk about the fact that sociocultural theory is concerned with development of explicit knowledge and how that develops between teacher and learners. Whereas interaction is about how language itself develops, not about explicit knowledge. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's my best guess at it. So, all right, we're getting, guess what the countdown is right now, kids? It's 353, 54, 55, <laughs> 56, 57, 58, 59, 54. It's time for book drawing, Walter. Whoa. So, Do I get to draw? I think I it's know. your turn because I'm no. gonna mix them. I'm gonna mix them up. Mix them they're up. All, they're all they're all in this little thing here. Yeah, they're Blind all in this drawing. little thing here. Mm-hmm. On this little thing here. Where is Bill it? is doing a fantastic oh. job. I'm, I'm doing of, fa- of I'm mixing. mixing them up. I'm mixlerizing these yep, things. Yep, I like it. Besides, You're mixlerizing them. There you go. <laughs> okay, now they're all mixed up nice and good. So go in there and all pull right. one out. Let's see who gets a book. Who gets a book? Oh, from the excitement. Somebody gets a book. Do I have just you one have or do two. I have two? Oh, I have two. Okay. There so, it goes. Oh, okay. and I feel bad for the person who got thrown back in. Oh, we'll never know who that was, so. The winner is Natalie from Yay! East Lansing. Yay! Congrats, yes. Natalie. Natalie, congratulations. You will win a book called, titled, While We're on the Topic, BVP on Language, Acquisition, and Classroom Practice, published by the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. So congratulations. My best wishes to you, Natalie, all of you, actually, in all your endeavors and your pre-service. And... Uh, that hope your education studies continue as best they can and that some of you may be getting out. I don't know when they're getting out to start teaching, but, you know, we always wish everybody best in their teaching. So so you will be in our thoughts, Natalie, as you get out in the teaching world. So the book will be on its way. Dustin will uh, make sure it gets to you somehow here on campus. So, well, thanks for that. Yay, Natalie. And thank you for saying that your book is titled while we're on the topic and not entitled. No, entitled is something else. I know, but everywhere people always say this article is entitled blah blah blah, this book is entitled blah blah blah. No, you're entitled I know, to something. I, I but know that. Something is titled. Yeah. I know. Did you ever notice Angelica oh, is a stickler language. for these things? God, I can't help it. 
She's, is it is it you or is it that German background, that BMW background, that, that precision driving machine background? I think it's a combination. Can I have to, I have to tell you something? I'm gonna I'm I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm true confession here before we start wrapping up. German products are my favorite products to buy. Yes. German cars. Hallelujah. Oh no. Bosch dishwashers. Okay, I thought you were going to say butt, but you said Bosch. Okay. Bosch good. Bosch dishwashers. <laughs> Bosch uh, uh, washer and dryers. I mean. All kinds of, I have to say this, buy German if you want to buy something that either plugs in or drives. <laughs> yep. Agreed. I'm serious. They just, Me they too. last forever. That, mm-hmm. And they're embossed. Indeed. Ugh. So. Indeed. <laughs> that, so. <laughs> do you own a German car? Indeed I do. Do you own a German dishwasher and a German washer and dryer? No, very unfortunately I do not. It's sad. Uh-huh. I'm not happy about that, but what do you do? Do you have German chocolate in your house? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> 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 and in my office and in my car. <laughs> oh, gosh. I do love me some German chocolate. Yes. It's yum, yum. Mm-hmm. And Swiss chocolate too, but you know. Swiss chocolate? Yeah. Swiss chocolate? Yeah. Really? Swiss chocolate? This is a guy who comes into my office and grabs the Reese's right out of the bowl. Oh, I love That's his Reese's. version of Swiss chocolate. Mm. No, no. Goes, is this, is this made in Bern? Just something about <laughs> <laughs> I've been there, actually. But anyway. Oh, well. Quick story about Switzerland, then we're going um, to sign off. I, when I was traveling in Switzerland, I was 19 years old. I was in Interlaken, Switzerland. This teeny, teeny little town right in the mountains, that's what, or between mm-hmm. the lakes. That's why I call it Interlaken. And I'm standing in line getting hot cocoa because it was snowing. And this guy stops me and goes, do I know you? And I say, no. And he goes, I'm sure I know you. He goes, you, you look like just somebody I used to know. And I said, I don't think so. And he goes, is your last name Van Patten? And what? I go, yeah. He goes, I used to date your sister in high school. <laughs> that is hilarious. There you go. You Small never know who you're going to be. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap up. We're going to do our acknowledgments now. It was a great show. Thanks, everybody, who called in today. We want to thank our technical producer, Daniel Trego, our media producer, Luca Giapponi. Luca. Giappone. I love that name, mm-hmm. right? He's going to make me some pasta. One of these days he's going to make me some pasta. Our talented and trusted call handler, Dustin DeFelice, who's also our what? Muscle man. Muscle man. Spelled M-U-S-C-L-E and not M-U-S-S-E-L. <laughs> and, this year, <laughs> and this year we have two assistant production managers, the able-bodied duo Chad Bosley and Ryan Stuck. Um, I don't think they're both here today because uh, this is a special pre-recorded time, but they were normally here with us on Thursdays. We want to thank the College of Arts and Letters at MSU, especially our dean, Christopher Long. As a reminder, the ideas, opinions, jokes, and anything else expressed in this program <laughs> do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any other official entity of Michigan State University. And of course, we want to thank Dustin Crowther for having his class call in today and interact with us. So thank you, Dustin. Thanks, Dustin. Thank you, class. Next week, we'll be back to continue our countdown to Actful 2017. The topic will be related to Chapter 2 of While We're on the Topic, and that topic will be about the nature of language. Until then, have a great weekend and happy second language acquisition to all. Angelica, Walter, say goodbye. Auf Wiederhören. Bis zum nächsten Mal. Wir freuen uns. Wow. Yeah, are you saying goodbye or are you singing? I can't oh, tell. Yeah, we gotta oh work on it. Really. It was too much. Bye-bye, everybody. See Bye, you later. Everybody. Bye, Cheers. thanks.